Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. So this is our third week now in our Christ the Healer series, where we are looking at Jesus's miracles of healing and asking ourselves, what is God revealing to us through these stories? And the healing that we're going to be looking at this week is from Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. So if you have your own Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Let me pray for us before we get into this. Lord, we invite you to work in us today. Lord, we pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open to your spirit. We pray that you'd help us to give our attention now to the scriptures. We invite you to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Mark 8, starting in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Kind of a strange story, isn't it? So let's go through it, verse by verse, starting from the top. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Notice, we're not told how the blind man feels about this. It doesn't actually say that the blind man asked for healing. It says that the people who brought him to Jesus begged Jesus to touch him. You know, for all we know, this guy might not have had any faith in Jesus at all. Uh, his friends might have come into his house and grabbed him and dragged him unwillingly to Jesus. Uh, we don't know if he had faith. We have no idea. But we do know that this guy had two things. He had people in his life who possessed two qualities. One is that they had some faith in Jesus. And two, they cared about him. They had enough faith to try and get their friend to Jesus. And they cared about him enough to beg Jesus to heal him on his behalf. Right? And this part of the story is actually very similar to the miracle that we looked at last week. Remember, that was the healing of the centurion's servant. So the person in that story who was healed wasn't even present. He was across town, and Jesus was able to heal him with, with just a word. So he wasn't able to be there, but he did have someone in his life, the centurion, who both had enough faith in Jesus and cared enough about him to go and ask Jesus for healing on his behalf. 
In both of these stories, the result is the person is healed, right? Sometimes when a person needs healing, all they really need in their life is someone who cares about them and someone who has faith in Jesus. So right now, if you think, you know, I can think of somebody who's hurting right now, right? Somebody who needs physical healing, emotional healing, um, mental healing of some kind. Recognize you might be the person who can act as the bridge between them and the healing power of Christ. Maybe that is through a conversation with them. Maybe that's through prayer, whether with them or just praying to God, interceding for them on their behalf, on your own. But you may be the person who's supposed to be the bridge. So if, as I say that, you know, somebody who's hurting and somebody comes into your mind, a particular person, don't forget that. Take that seriously. And, and try to act on it in some way uh, after this service. All right, so let's keep going. Next verse. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Now, my question here is, why didn't he do the healing in the village? Why did he take him outside? And actually, this same question is raised by what happens at the end of the story, right? Where Jesus tells the man to go home, but don't go into the village. So Jesus is clearly uncomfortable with this healing being very public. He doesn't want a lot of people to, to see it. Now, why would that be? You know, shouldn't Jesus want everybody to see his power on display? Well, if you read the Gospels, you'll find that this happens a lot, where Jesus does something miraculous, and then he says, let's keep this quiet, right? Keep it on the down low. Why would he do that? Well, the simplest answer is that Jesus is trying to make sure that he does not die before the appointed time. <laughs> because the more Jesus causes a stir the more he knows that that is going to upset the authorities, both the religious authorities and the Roman authorities, because they're going to perceive his displays of power as a threat to their own power. Now, Jesus knows that part of his mission is going to include being executed, but he also knows that there's some things he needs to get done before that happens, right? So he's being, he's being very strategic, trying to make sure that the information gets out uh, not too quickly and he doesn't end up going to the cross too soon. So that's one explanation uh, for what's going on here. But I think it's also possible that Jesus is looking out for this man and he's trying to protect him. Because Jesus knows that if this guy goes back into town as a testimony to the power of Jesus that some of the authorities might be uncomfortable with that and they might try to shut him up, uh, whether through violence or threats to his family or something like that. Uh, there's a passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus refers to this town, Bethsaida, as a place that is particularly hardened against him, right? So it's possible that what's going on here is Jesus is looking out for this guy, trying to, uh, to keep him safe. All right. So let's get to the heart of the story again. When he had spit on the man's eyes 
and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, I don't know about you guys, but those three verses raise a lot of questions for me. Uh, sometimes when Jesus heals somebody, he just does it with a word, right? Like the miracle that we looked at last week, he didn't even need to be in the presence of the person who was healed. Sometimes he'll touch the person, like he did with the leper. Uh, but this one is really weird, right? He spits, and he touches him twice. It's a two-stage healing. So why is that? Why would that be? Well, first of all, I will have to admit that when it comes to the spitting, I am not sure. Uh, I wish I had a clear answer to that because I'm sure it makes us all kind of uncomfortable and I would like to resolve that discomfort. Um, but I am not sure. So one thing I read is that in those days people did associate saliva with healing. They thought saliva had healing properties. Now clearly Jesus doesn't need to spit to heal someone, right? He didn't in the other miracles. But maybe Jesus is kind of playing along with the expectations of that time. God does have this way of kind of accommodating to uh, our perceptions and uh, speaking to us in a way that we can understand. So that might be part of what's going on here. It's also possible that this man having his eyes spit on would have communicated something significant to him that we just don't understand. We, in our time, in our place, in our culture, we don't get it. But for this man, and possibly for others who were witnesses, um, there was something significant and valuable that was being communicated to him through that. And Jesus, Jesus knew that. Another possibility, maybe, is that the way this healing is happening is meant to remind us that healing is sometimes messier than we want it to be. You know, I think all of us, when we want some kind of healing, we just want God to do it in an instant. Snap, and it's done. But sometimes healing involves a process. And sometimes that process is messy. It's not easy. You know, sometimes God does just heal us in an instant. If you were here a few months ago when Steve Bell gave his testimony, he described having an experience like that. Just this, like the lights coming on and things being fixed. But, you know, other people might need a recovery program. You know, they, uh, they might need to see a counselor. It might take time. But that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't involved in that healing. That he's not present and working through the stages of the healing. Now, let's think about what the man says after that first touch. He says, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Now that suggests to, the, to us that this is not a man who was born blind. He had some familiarity with what trees and people look like. Um, but he had lost his sight. And so he receives a first touch and opens his eyes. And he can see something, but obviously it's very vague. It's very blurry and undefined. It's like he sees vertical lines shifting around. But they might as well be 
be trees, even though they're people, right? The people just look like vertical lines. The only difference between them and trees is that they move. So he's got some sight now, but it's blurry. He can't make out faces. He can't make out arms and legs. He just sees this very general outline. But then he gets a second touch from Jesus, and then he sees clearly. So, here is what I hear this story saying to us. The healing of our perception is a process. The healing of our perception is a process. And specifically, accurately perceiving Jesus can involve a process. Now, why do I say this? Well, part of the reason I say it is because of where this story is placed in the Gospel of Mark. You might not know this, but the Gospel writers arrange the material in their Gospels in an order that's intentional. We tend to think, with our modern mindset, that they just try to record everything chronologically, that it's just about getting the right order that things happened historically. But that's not necessarily the gospel writer's style. What they would do is they would collect these testimonies, these stories, and then they would try to arrange the material in a way that highlighted certain themes. So it's, I don't think it's any accident that this story about a healing of someone's perception is sandwiched between two stories about how the disciples perceive Jesus. Two stories about how the disciples perceive Jesus. So right before this, Mark gives us a, a scene where the disciples are on a boat with Jesus. And they're worried that Jesus is upset because they forgot to bring any bread on the boat. Which is actually really funny. It's supposed to be really funny for us as readers. Because right before they got on this boat, Jesus miraculously fed 4,000 people bread. Right? But now they're on the boat and they're, they're murmuring to each other. They're like, oh, I think Jesus is upset because we didn't bring any bread. And Jesus says to them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? In other words, do you still not realize who I am? And what I'm capable of? Notice that phrase. Do you have eyes but fail to see? Jesus is saying, you can see me, but you're not perceiving who I really am. And what I can do. And what I'm about. Sounds a lot like what's about to happen, right? With the guy in his eyesight. So that's right before the healing story. And then right after the healing story, we're back again to the subject of how the disciples perceive Jesus. This is the passage where Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? So let's look at that, starting in verse 29. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, Peter is right that Jesus is the Messiah. But he doesn't yet correctly perceive what that means. Because when Peter thinks of the Messiah, he thinks of a bunch of activities that are not actually on Jesus' agenda. 
He, like most of the Israelites at the time, expects the Messiah to be a very worldly kind of king, meaning he expects him to be the, a king that operates the way that most worldly kings do. He expects the Messiah to come and overthrow Rome and establish Israel as the supreme nation. He expects the Messiah to be a triumphant political and military leader, not a suffering servant. And the fact that Peter thinks this way becomes very clear in what happens immediately after this. Peter goes from saying the right thing, you're the Messiah, to saying completely the wrong thing. Verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So this idea that Jesus would be rejected and that he would suffer and die was so different from Peter's understanding of what the Messiah would do that he rebukes Jesus. He rebukes Jesus. <laughs> he says, you're wrong, Jesus. The guy that he watched still a storm with a word. The guy that he's seen do these incredible miracles and cast out demons and feed 4,000 people miraculously by multiplying bread. He says, you're wrong. No, Jesus. You're not supposed to suffer. You're supposed to be a triumphant, powerful, beloved king. And Jesus' response to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. That has got to be rough to have Jesus call you Satan. <laughs> I mean, Peter just said, you are the Messiah. And in Matthew's gospel, it says that Jesus responds to that by saying, blessed are you, Peter. But just like in Mark's gospel, immediately after, he gets called Satan. So he goes from being called blessed to being called Satan very quickly. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying that Peter is literally the devil. But he is saying that the spirit of the devil, the attitude of the devil, is being reflected in what Peter is saying. Because Peter is opposing God's plan. What Peter is doing, whether he realizes it or not, is he is tempting Jesus in much the same way that the devil tempted Jesus in the desert. When the devil tempted Jesus in the desert, it was a temptation to achieve the kingdom of God through some other means other than the cross. To achieve the kingdom of God through some other means other than sacrificial love. And Jesus tells Peter the same thing he told the devil. No way. No way. See, Peter's perception of how the kingdom of God is supposed to be built and how God works is wrong. It's off. Peter thinks it's going to be built through the ways of the world, that it's going to be built through violence and armies and power grabbing. But Jesus knows that the kingdom of God has to be built through sacrificial love, through suffering, through the cross. And so he rebukes Peter sternly, 
You don't get it yet, Peter. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So, before the miracle and after the miracle, we've got stories of the disciples failing to perceive who Jesus is accurately. And so, this story in the middle, when Mark places it there, this healing story, he is saying that this is a good picture of what the disciples are going through. Right now, they're not seeing Jesus clearly. It's like they've received the first touch. And when they look at Jesus, it's like seeing people who look like trees walking around. It's blurry. They don't quite get it yet. They know that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't really understand what the Messiah is about. Their perception still needs to be healed. Just like this man needed the second touch. So again, big idea. The healing of our perception is a process, including our perception of Jesus. You know, our first encounter experience with Jesus can be incredibly powerful, life-changing, transforming. When we go from seeing nothing spiritually, to seeing something. But whether we realize it or not, usually our spiritual perception is still blurry after that first touch. And we need to have the humility to recognize that we still have more to learn. You know, I think what happens sometimes is that a person has an initial experience with Jesus, and it's very powerful. But their perception of him is not much better than Peter's was when he got called Satan. They have a perception, but it's really blurry. It's really vague. And they end up sometimes settling for that blurry perception. And rather than pursuing Jesus more and getting more clarity and improving their perception, they assume the blurriness is actually clarity. I've got it all figured out. And then, this is the worst part, is that their minds start to fill in the blurriness with whatever shape they want Jesus to take. Jesus the conservative. Jesus the liberal. Jesus the hippie, Jesus the warrior, Jesus the American, Jesus the capitalist, Jesus the socialist, Jesus the traditionalist, Jesus, Jesus the revolutionary, right? People like to think of Jesus as being on their side, and we like to make Jesus in our image. We like to think that if Jesus were here in the flesh, he would be an advocate for whatever our particular values are, whatever our politics is, whatever our philosophy is, whatever particular ism we subscribe to. We like to think Jesus would be on my side. Now, in some cases, whatever we think would be correct the right values or whatever, Jesus may very well be on our side in that respect. But we've got to be so, so careful. 
We have to be careful, careful not to fill in our blurry perception of Jesus with our own preferences. Because that's what Peter was doing, right? And he got called Satan. So what can we do to improve our perception? Well, here is one suggestion. Read the Gospels, read them carefully, and read them with this question in mind. What matters to Jesus? What's important to Jesus? What does he talk about? What gets him fired up? What makes him happy? What matters to Jesus? And, and keep a log of your answers to that question. And then ask yourself, does what matters to Jesus matter to me? You may find that in that process, you experience something like a second touch from Jesus, sharpening your perception. The healing of our perception is a process. It takes time. It, to some extent, I think it takes our whole lives. You know, Paul says that right now it's kind of like we're seeing through a glass that is dim. Seeing through dirty, dirty glass. But one day we will see the Lord face to face. When I first learned about Jesus as a kid, I learned several things that I still believe today. Jesus is God. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. But over the course of my life so far, I've also had a lot of misperceptions about Jesus and about the Bible. And over my journey of faith so far, I've also had to unlearn some things. For example, uh, when I was a kid, I assumed that, you know, if you were a person who obeyed God, that your life would be smooth and easy and you'd be blessed. And if you were a person who was sinful, then God would punish you in this life and you'd get caught and things would not go well for you. And a lot of the time that happens, but, you know, after a while I had to realize, like Job, it doesn't always work like that. Sometimes you're faithful and things are really hard. And some people are not faithful. Some people do terrible evil and they seem to get away with it. I had to realize that life was more complicated than I initially thought. I had to unlearn some things. And that's just one example. I mean, there's so many. The healing of our perception is a process. And it is a process that continues through our entire lives if we are open to the Spirit doing it. Jesus said after he ascended that he was sending the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would teach us all things. And he does. If we let him, he will keep teaching us, he will keep sharpening our vision through scripture, through prayer, through life experience, through community. He keeps working on us. He keeps sharpening that perception. But 
in order to receive everything that the Spirit wants to do, we have to have the humility to say, well, I might not have it all figured out yet. Here's what my experience has been. I'll close with this. And again, I'm not saying I have it all figured out. I expect to be pursuing Christ and having my perception sharpened for the rest of my life, however many years God gives me. But my experience has been, and I don't expect this to change, that the more that Jesus heals my perception, the more I realize that he's even better than I thought. He's more beautiful. He's more merciful. He's more clever. He's more good than I first perceived. So let Jesus keep teaching you. Don't assume that you're done. Let him reveal to you the heart of God. For as the Apostle Paul wrote, in him all the fullness of God dwelled, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Lord, we want to see you as you truly are. We want to behold your glory and worship you in spirit and in truth. So, Father, we invite you to keep sharpening our vision. Give us that second touch. Heal our perception. Help our hearts and our minds to be more in line with the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.